Ben. Cam. We left the last pod <laughs> in a bit of a precarious situation in that we were down PY. Mm-hmm. Man down. Man down. We did talk about a very important topic. Hmm. What was that very important topic we discussed? Did you did you add another D starting material? <laughs> I actually can't remember. What did we talk about? Dirk Hartog. <laughs> of course, the boy. I was actually talking to Harry about Dirk Hartog yesterday. <laughs> Such is just the... So we decided as penance for missing the last two pods, the way that PY can get back on the pod is if he goes and finds Dirk Hartog's play. <laughs> <laughs> he is currently in WA right now. Oh my gosh, the, the dots are connecting. <laughs> Now, the other thing as well is I was like, okay, we've had a couple of weeks where we've done just Australian pods. Like we'd mm. done Harold Holt. We'd yeah looked at the origins of European Australia. Why don't we go back to doing an overseas one? And so I was like, okay, why don't we do the origins of Israel-Palestine? Literally mm. that night, Hamas did their attack yeah, and wow. then Israel launched their invasion into Gaza. And within two weeks, everyone's already over talking about it and everyone's mm. already over the armchair experts uh-huh. giving you their two cents in Israel-Palestine. And I think the audience would be over that as well. So I was like, if we're already going to get demonetized, <laughs> why don't, and if we're, we're going to bring on someone else and we can't pay them a speaker's fee because we're demonetized this episode. <laughs> so <laughs> they haven't actually given us any labor, any profit. Why don't we bring on our good friend, Harry onto the podcast? Well, <laughs> and uh, Harry, our first guest appearance on the, uh, yeah, true. The pod. How exciting. <laughs> It's very exciting. So Harry is the fourth member of our Young Liberals group chat. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we're very excited to have him on. Excited and to be here. That's how I'm best known, actually, as the fourth member. <laughs> <laughs> he does work for a bank, so... <laughs> he goes head head. And so we thought, why don't we talk Osama Bin Laden? And why history's given him a bad rap. Harry, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a stitch up. Um, no, great to be here, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> so... We have brought Harry on into effectively walking the tightrope for two mm. episodes straight as we do discuss <laughs> Simon Laden. I will preface it with this. We do intend to keep our lighthearted nature of the podcast. We are operating in sensitive material. We actually won't be talking about 9-11 for that much of our conversation. It's more just the geopolitical tensions that effectively make Osama Bin Laden. And so because we're operating in that space, we have every intention of keeping it lighthearted. We're trying not to be tone deaf or anything like that, but... We want to keep doing it the way we keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And we think it will help engage people with Osama Bin Laden. So, But relax, we don't want to engage people, you know, the way you said engage people with Osama <laughs> Bin Laden. <laughs> with, uh, with the with infidels. The, <laughs> with the life and times of Osama Bin Laden. <laughs> yeah, the rise and fall. That's what it is, the rise and fall of Osama Bin Laden. I'll start with you, Harry. Mm. Your first ever question on the podcast. <laughs> what was your first memory of Osama Bin Laden? Um, I am struggling to remember, but I do have a clear memory of actually when he was, was reported to have been killed. And mm. interesting you used the word reported. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, now that he's got the airwaves, he's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, His alleged assassination. <laughs> yeah. My first memory was my family and I were actually away and I saw it on the news that, yeah, America or someone (laughs) (laughs) had killed Osama Bin Laden. And I remember my dad saying, oh, I just want to get out of here. And I could never understand what that was about. But as I reflect on it, we were in Hawaii at the time, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is in America, I suppose. 
And so, yeah, it was, it was a bit worried about it all. True. Like, actually, that is, that's not an unfair, yeah, like, yeah. a re- retaliatory attack. Yeah. It's mm. geographically the closest that's, yeah, that's American right. state. So, I was 11 at the time. Probably should have connected the dots a bit earlier. <laughs> Bro was just a low hurry. Just no concept of what's going on. Ben? Yeah, I was, I was similarly struggling. I think it's, it's close between. I reckon it was, so what, what year was he killed allegedly? 2011. 2011. Yeah. Like that's like, that's like prime behind the news, like time <laughs> yeah. in primary school. So it wouldn't surprise me if, yeah, my first key memory was around the time he was killed, probably because there was a behind the news <laughs> segment about it that I then, Did you it? know, wrote a little think piece on. <laughs> <laughs> it was right before the end of, would have been when you were in year five, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did that throw you off your campaign for <laughs> school captain of Brody Bay Public School? <laughs> yeah, my, my campaign did hinge on me being the one to bring him to justice. <laughs> so <laughs> that was my promise to my voters that, that the most wanted man in the world would be apprehended under my rule. Um, so, yeah, a real, definitely. A gap in the market for a school captain campaign. Some guy to be like, we're going to finish off ISIS. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I will free Julian Assange. Like, it's, it's like, it's so true. The, like, you know, the, the sort of Coca-Cola and the bubblers yeah. is just such a small fry compared to these real issues. Um, yeah, perhaps the reason I only got vice captain. You know, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, now you can only be number two. <laughs> so... I, my first memory of Osama Bin Laden was when I was in year five, actually, so 2008. And I was actually, if I'm not mistaken, I think my first memory of finding out Osama Bin Laden or who he was, was with Ben's brother, Ethan. And it's the era of YouTube where it's just like crazy frog bros. And you've got your very early, like Charlie, yeah, Charlie, the, Charlie, the unicorn, Peach Daz, yeah. yeah. We could, we could, we could go on and on <laughs> <laughs> before, up until year five, YouTube had been completely moderated by my brother. So my brother had fed me through crazy frog bros. Who's three years older than me. And Ethan and I, we were browsing it for the first time ourselves, just seeing what's there. And you know, the, the Numa Numa video, like the, of the guy, Singing like the Maya he my mm. song. Oh yeah, yeah. And there was a parody that was this guy dressed up as Osama bin Laden. Yeah, yeah. And I remember I didn't know who Osama bin Laden was. I was just like, this. I've got a feeling that this is this is in poor taste. <laughs> <laughs> Something about this. <laughs> just had an eye for the social justice from an early age. This might, this might not go down so well with a particular particular group. And then literally, it wasn't until Osama bin Laden was killed that. So I was in year eight at the time. Because I'd seen the footage of the plane going into the Twin Towers, but I didn't know what it was or anything. Mm. I'd just mm. seen it loosely. And then, yeah, my science teacher connected all the dots for me when he announced to our class that Osama Bin Laden had been killed. Wow, that was like, you've just paused, you know, your little yeah, like Bunsen burner license kind of thing yeah. to be like, hey, well, yeah, damn. And I remember because it was a Monday afternoon in Australia, so probably Sunday in America, and... I was on the way to get a haircut. Mum didn't know. Mum found out on the radio while driving me to get a haircut. Mm. And she was like, just flabbergasted. She was like, Cameron, this is this is, this is is a huge historical event. Yeah. And then, because my science teacher told me like a couple of facts, I kind of flexed on her, yeah. like, my knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. <laughs> <laughs> and so today we'll be looking at both the rise and the fall of Osama Bin Laden. The question I want to ask you as well before we get into it, why did Osama Bin Laden do 9-11? Hmm. Because that's the question I'm going to hinge this entire podcast on. What would before we get into it though? What's your understanding of why Osama bin Laden did it? I sort of I sort of was like a kind of anti the 
capitalist debauchery of the West kind of thing, mm-hmm. that it was the like sort of go against all the kind of principles of Islam. And then as a result, he sort too, of attacked that. So too more relaxed, too hedonistic. Yeah. 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 Crab him. I feel like there's there's something to do with Israel Palestine in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> there always is. <laughs> it's that Rick and Morty episode where Rick's got to justify his Israel. It's like the one that I uh, can't. What the the Avengers? What's the, the episode where there's like the superhero? Team? I haven't seen Rick and Morty in forever. Yeah, and I'm Rick has to explain his pro-Palestine stance to like effectively what's designed to be kind of like Jewish aliens and (laughs) (laughs) that sounds like a good one yeah it was was quite funny (laughs) okay well if we're going to think about why he did not there's certainly elements of truth in both of those statements and I think it's closer to the truth than what I always understood which was that he just hated freedom and that he was just (laughs) (laughs) you were just just, you were just sipping the (laughs) sipping the Kool-Aid he was just there in a cave being like man (laughs) you watched you watched like Bush's first pitch post 9-11 and you're just like yeah that's freedom right there and that's what Osama hated I I remember I had an American English teacher in high school and she said that Americans didn't like Bush which is largely accurate she was from from San Francisco so she would have had a particularly Mm. um, biased point of view but I remember it's being crushed. I'm like, this guy was like, as a, he was a hero as a kid. Like, <laughs> I just remember seeing him on the news, being like, "We're going to kill the terrorists. We love freedom." Like, yeah, uh, oh yeah, seven year old. Pardon me for sipping the Kool Aid. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just devastated when I realised that people didn't actually like George Bush. Was he unpopular, George Bush? Only at the, at the back end. Okay. So he won 2004, yeah. but 2008, yeah, he was he was pretty pretty unpopular. Okay. Also connected to the JFC rather than just. Mm the war on terror so let's go all the way back pretty much 100 years ago we're going to start with Osama bin Laden's father Muhammad he was a construction exec from Yemen mm-hmm. and he became friends with King Saud mm. the founder of Saudi Arabia really yes wow and King Saud basically had a policy of jobs for the boys mm-hmm. and he gave all his construction work to Mohammed bin Laden. The bin Laden family became the wealthiest non-royal family in Saudi Arabia. Wow. Mm. So, Osama bin Laden, you think like a terrorist must come from a really hardened background. Mm. And he's, him, a, he's a Nepo baby. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and really like... I feel like it really undermines his achievements now, you know, just the nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that is actually going to be really important later in the story. He was also apparently quite a shy guy. And so... I mean, he yeah, he would overcome that later in life, but he was quite timid as a young boy and he actually wasn't a devout Muslim in his early years of his life. So there was lots of stories, particularly in like the, the early 70s when he's kind of in his late teens of him having some nights out on the town in over in Beirut in Lebanon. And apparently he was quite, quite the, like he was, a, he was a quiet party boy for a lot of his life. And so realistically there's a number of people that would still be alive today that can claim that they had a night out on the town with Osama bin Laden back in the seventies, which is just wild to think about when you think of him as this really like strict practicing Muslim. Mm. Yeah. Imagine that. And like your, your corporate icebreakers kind of thing. You're like, tell a fun fact about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the two truths and a lie. Yeah. <laughs> it's insane. Insane. And so he also was a massive football fan. And by football, I mean association football, soccer. Any guesses as to who his team was? Like an English team? English team. Hmm. 
Arsenal. It was Arsenal. <laughs> the Gunners. No pun intended. Like. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, again, like one of those things of, this is the 70s before he kind of gets into jihadism that yeah, people point to like as like foreshadowing of what would come and that he really was destined for terrorism from the beginning. He just liked the red team in football. He was also, because he was quite tall, he was a very good centre forward. Apparently kind of really? got on the end of some, some is he like six foot seven? He's target man, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> Similar to post 2001. <laughs> um, yes. If I elaborate any further, we'll be breaking up from us not to do a tone deaf joke. And so he basically, yeah, was, was, was quite a good football player. Kind of probably not close to, or not too far from being Peter Crouch's height and scored a lot of goals. How old is he at that, this sort of time? I th- he was born in 1957, so he's only 18 years old. Okay. In 1975, he converts to devout Islam and he becomes much more strict and a much keener observer of Islam. There's a couple of things that really shift his perspective around Islam and government, though. And his understanding of kind of jihad so that's not a word that necessarily means holy war it means islamic struggle and his understanding of the islamic struggle is to establish an islamic caliphate that effectively kind of has political control over so he does not agree with separation of church and state at all and for him the highest moral good is islam so of course you need governments to enforce that so you've got a society that practices what he understands to be the highest moral good and so basically there's two things that completely change both of these happened in 1979 the first one is the Iranian Revolution. Mm-hmm. You've seen Argo, Ben. I have, yeah. Have you seen Argo, Harry? I have not. It's set in the context of the Iranian Revolution. It doesn't really explain the Iranian Revolution. No. It's more about a hostage crisis that comes afterwards. Basically, there's a guy who rules Iran before that. Remember his name, Ben? No, no. He's called the Shah. Oh, yes. And so the Shah, he was a secular dictator that was pro-America, which was great because Persia's filled with oil fields. And so he rules Iran, but there's an Islamic uprising that results in the Shah being overthrown. And now there's a new ruler of Iran called Ayatollah Wuhollo Khomeini. That was phenomenal. Wow. I, the, you- I like the, the, I, the Persian, I had to do a video on it like forever ago. And like the Persian accent, like the Persian enunciation is quite hard to do. Mm. I go back to the video. It's, it's Wuhollo Khomeini. And I would say, Khomeini <laughs> it's just impossible to go back to and listen to so I do apologise to anyone who end up watching that video so basically the thing that you need to understand about the Iranian revolution is that it's a Shiite revolution so Islam's got Sunni and Shia most of the Islamic world is Sunni the difference comes from kind of the succession of Muhammad so was it through Muhammad's son or was it through a council that chose his father-in-law to kind of take on the ownership Sunnis believe it was the council that chose Muhammad's uh, father-in-law and then Shiites believe that, that the kind of Islamic or kind of the leadership of Islam is passed through a bloodline. So the Shiite revolution tends to be quite fanatic because there's kind of a purity in their sect of Islam that isn't there in the Sunnis and that we've got a direct mm. claim through bloodline in our kind of Islamic leadership. So in the Shiite world, an Ayatollah is a high-ranking cleric. Think of it like as like a cardinal in the Catholic church or something like that. So imagine like a cardinal becoming a leader of a major country. And so they kind of have this huge revolution. Khomeini becomes the leader and he enforces this really strict observance to Islam. And it's the first major 
Islamic government in the world. Where there are Islamic governments that exist, but they're much more moderate. This one kind of enforces it much stronger. We then have another big event in 1979. Do you guys do modern history? In no, I did. 11, 12? Did you do the Cold War? No, no. Have you heard of the Soviet-Afghan War? Nope. This one, there's a little bit of background for this one. So basically, 1978, so we're talking Afghanistan, and historically, Afghanistan was a colonial battle between Russia and Britain. So Russia's interest is that it's south of its border and they want to kind of have it well fortified because it's a neighboring country. Britain wanted to have it well fortified because it wasn't particularly valuable in of itself. It's quite mountainous and, and you know not abundant with resources, but it was the stairway into Pakistan and India. And so Britain was really keen to have strong control. And so there was kind of a, a, a long cold proxy war between those two nations over Afghanistan for a long time. In 1978, we have what's called the Saur Revolution, spelled S-A-U-R. Effectively, what happens is the communists in Afghanistan, so kind of pro-Soviet, they kind of claim power in a coup. And it's really interesting because you've got the religious element of this as well. So when it comes to communism, there's like, you know, the, the religion is the opiate of the masses. It's used as a way to convince people not to achieve economic justice now because if they believe in an afterlife, that's where their focus is going to be rather than in claiming their workers' rights right now. So Marx was obviously very anti-religion. And so in the South Revolution, you've got this secular revolution that more or less teaches a soft atheism. It's not like a Richard Dawkins revolution where, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, the God delusion has to be taught in, yeah. <laughs> in year four. But it is a, a secular revolution with a, a more, more, more or less an atheistic worldview. And so this does not go down well in the villages of Afghanistan that are very conservative so basically you've got Kabul. Kabul at the time was quite diverse as a city. So yeah, you get, like if you were in Central Asia, you wanted to go for a night out, you'd go, go to Kabul for a night out. You go to the mountains and you've got kind of the, more or less villages probably isn't the right word. Tribes is probably the more accurate word. You've got a group called the Pashtuns. The Pashtuns really dislike this revolution. They're very conservative and so, like, it was commonplace in Pashtun culture if, say, um, a Pashtun man's wife got pregnant, that wife wouldn't be seen for nine months because it was seen as shameful. Mm. So, not, not like, obviously, it had to happen to procreate, but in the same way that, like, you just wouldn't walk around nude in the street mm. because everyone is nude, of course, <laughs> under, <laughs> under mm. those. But it's shameful to kind of flaunt it in public. So, that's kind of how conservative Pashtun culture is. And so, they strongly reject the Sour Revolution and they start forming resistance to what's going on. This group of soldiers in the mountains is called the Mujahideen. That's going to be a very important name. So because we're talking Middle East and a lot of kind of fast-paced, foreign-sounding names, it's going to be tough to remember them all. Mm. The Mujahideen is one we've got to remember. Okay. That's that's key. Yeah. Okay. So the Mujahideen forms soft resistance and kind of does guerrilla warfare against the Sour Revolution. What happens is the number two, so a guy called Hazifullah Amin, he assassinates the leader, a guy called Muhammad Taraki. And so now number two is just backstab number one. He's the captain now Hmm. and we've got a new leader. So now there's a lot of trouble because there's internal resistance and external resistance. The Pashtuns really reject what's gone on because it's this atheistic revolution. And then you've got even the kind of communists that are in Kabul 
a lot of them are like, whoa, 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 we didn't pledge our allegiance to you. Hmm. We pledged our allegiance to the other guy. A lot of trouble for the pro-Soviet regime. Hmm. If you're the Soviet Union, what's your move here? Wait, so I think I've got a little lost. So the, the Soviets are supporting this revolution in Afghanistan, right? Yes. To, to sort of turn Afghanistan communist. Yeah, and have it as a pro-Soviet state. Yeah. Um, so do you just send in the big guns? Is that what you do? That's exactly what you do. <clears throat> so the Soviets launch an invasion of Afghanistan. Right. And yep. actually they want to get rid of the the new guy because you follow him in. So they're like, yep. We want we want you gone. We're gonna ha- we are gonna install the leadership of this country. We are gonna crush the Mujahideen for you because you're incapable of doing that. Hmm. And we will make sure that that Afghanistan is a pro-Soviet state. This is seen as their Vietnam moment. So in the same way that America had their failed campaign in Vietnam in the '60s, this is the Soviets' Vietnam moment where they go in and basically try and convert a foreign country into a clearly pro-Soviet state. The issue is is that the Mujahideen are completely unbeatable. Hmm. And unfortunately, the, the Americans didn't learn that lesson later on in history. Hmm. Any guesses who the Mujahideen became? Like Al-Qaeda or something? Or Close. ISIS? Oh. The other one. Not ISIS. Not ISIS, not Al-Qaeda. Taliban. The Taliban. Hmm. So they, like, Mujahideen would morph into the Taliban <laughs> later in life. <laughs> and so... Again, America had the same thing of they couldn't defeat the Taliban in, in the mountains of Afghanistan. So what happened is the Soviets would clearly have strong control over Kabul. That was no issue. It was when they moved into the mountains, the Mujahideen would do guerrilla warfare and they would more or less basically just kind of raid any Soviet settlement that was in the mountains. And basically when the Soviets would kind of launch an invasion, they would retreat. Then the Soviets would go back being like, we can't find them. Then they would come back and kill them. And it was just like this really effective campaign. The Mujahideen basically said, you cannot beat us. The reason why that you can't beat us is, sure, we know the the mountains and all that, and you're going to struggle in the mountains. But the key is that we are not fighting for land. We're not fighting for settlement or anything like that. We are fighting for Islam. Hmm. And so this is kind of one of the first real religious wars that are fought. Like people always say, oh, religion's the cause of every war. It's like maybe the case of like 5% of wars. This is one of them, where the Mujahideen view it as a war against Islam and they more or less have the attitude of like, take our homes, take our villages, take our mountains, whatever. We will keep fighting because we are fighting for Islam. And so they're unbeatable. Like they mm. just will not surrender whatever the circumstances are. They're well organized and they get a friend. Someone enters the picture now. Osama. Osama. The boy. Now, Osama, so he's kind of really inspired by the Iranian revolution, but he's like... But wrong, wrong sect of Islam. He's Sunni. He's like, mm. so no, no thanks to Shia. These guys are majority Sunni. We are going to go in. We're going to fight. We're going to help them. And so what bin Laden does is bin Laden actually, what's his, what's his great asset that he has at this point in history? Money. Money. And so he more or less just funds the Mujahideen. And he organizes, like, he organizes a whole set of forces. So he recruits 25,000 soldiers across 35 different countries to go and support the Mujahideen to fight in the Holy War. Wow. He also gets support from someone who thought that they would be his friend, who might support Bin Laden. America. America. Mm. So what the CIA does is the CIA funds Bin Laden, who funds the Mujahideen. Oh, my gosh. So the, the, the CIA, so what they can't directly send soldiers in, because that, be that would be direct soldier-to-soldier combat against the Soviets, and they don't want to do that. Mm. 
So they need kind of a proxy force to go in for them. So they go to Pakistan and they give a whole bunch of money to Pakistan. Jimmy Carter initially wasn't that keen on it. And when Ronald Reagan came in, Reagan was happy, happy to do it and happy to give them more money. And then Pakistan then used that money to pay bin Laden. And that's the beginning of the Pakistan-Bin Laden relationship, which will be really important down the track as well. So Bin Laden is effectively organizing these forces to fight the resistance against the Soviet Union. At first, he doesn't fight in the war himself because he made a promise to his mum that he wouldn't die. And it, first you look at it, you're like, well, that's awfully convenient. Mm. <laughs> oh, sorry, guys. I, I, yeah. It's my mum. I can't. Mum <laughs> yeah. said I can't come over. <laughs> I don't take it up with her. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I fought for you. I fought. Uh, I asked for a sleepover. And, said <laughs> and so, but eventually he feels great shame at his, at the kind of Muslim Brotherhood dying. And he actually thinks at one point, he thinks it's a Dune campaign. He's like, the Soviets are just going to win. And so he feels this great shame that they've lost the Holy War. So he signs up to do a suicide mission effectively. And he wants to die a martyr's death because that's kind of a huge badge of honour in not just Islam, but even Christianity, though martyrdom in Christianity would look much more passive than kind of a military campaign. But martyrdom is something to be strived for in religion. I believe that um, actually like martyrdom is the only way in Islam that you can be assured of your salvation is to die in the service of Islam. So... That's, that would make that's like that's why people do it, I think. Because yeah. hmm. I, like outside of that, you're just I think you're just hoping to have lived well enough to to please Allah. Yeah. Um, but it's still sort of discretionary at that point. Yeah, exactly. And there's again, when you look at the difference between Christianity and Islam, Christianity assures people eternal life because it's kind of rooted in in what Jesus has done rather than mm-hmm. what a human has done. But yeah, exactly right. Islam, it's like, well, we'll just try and stack my resume till I die. And then that kind of leads to, yeah, exactly that. And martyrdom, I didn't realise it was the only guaranteed way. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I, I would it makes heard it, that somewhere. It makes yeah. a lot of sense. And it explains, yeah, why they, why they would do it. Um, yeah. And so basically what happens is Bin Laden signs up for a suicide mission. So he's gone from not fighting in the war to signing up for a suicide mission. Yes. He's yeah. gone from, yeah, mum won't let me. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Sorry, mum. <laughs> uh, because he feels a great sense of shame that sure. his brothers have died yeah. and he okay. wants the martyr's death. But he doesn't die the martyr's death. He ends up being a war hero in a really successful guerrilla raid. And hmm. effectively, like, because he wants to do a suicide mission and the, the, the Mujahideen are like, no, that's dumb. We don't, do, we don't do suicide raids. We do guerrilla warfare. Like, that's the only way we can win this war. Don't throw your life away just to kind of pat yourself on the back. We need you to kind of actually do, like, serious military campaigns that are tactically smart. And so he actually, he does that. He, he does a risky mission and he ends up doing it incredibly successfully and he returns as a war hero. Eventually what happens, the Soviets give up, like the Americans did in Vietnam, the Soviets give up in Afghanistan and withdraw. Mm. And so Bin Laden is a hero at this point. Mm. And he's not just a hero in the Islamic world, he's a hero in the American intelligence world. Oh my gosh. Amer- the American public has no idea who he is, yeah. but the American intelligence are like, hey, that fanatical Islamic guy actually turned up with the goods for us. And the Americans, they, don't, they, 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 they know that he, he doesn't have a favourable view of America, but the enemy of the enemy was a friend and they were pretty chuffed with the outcome on that one. But it doesn't go well after that. Hmm. So basically, the kind of one of the resistance forces that was formed, I, this one I will watch the pronunciation because I'm very sorry. So Bin Laden formed a group called the Maktab al-Kidamat. And basically what happened was he split with others in that group over 
whether Arabs should kind of have their own separate force or whether you should allow non-Arabs into that Islamic Brotherhood force. Mm-hmm. Bin Laden was pro anyone and the others were like, nah, this is just for Arabs only. But he fought with the Pashtuns and he's like, we just fought alongside our kind of our brotherhood here and why are we kind of denying our Pashtun brothers entry into this force? So he splits and he forms a new force called... Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, which is Arabic for the base. And so he forms Al-Qaeda and he comes back after the war as a jihad hero. Uh, by the way, I should have added as well that between the CIA, Saudi Arabia and China, basically they provided 6 to $12 billion of aid in the Soviet-Afghan war. So that's a lot of money that ends, a lot of money, ended yeah. up in Bin Laden's pocket. And Bin Laden returns to Saudi Arabia in 1989, goes back to the homeland, is this Islamic hero, but the Saudi Arabian government is militarily moderate. They're not moderate, like, from our point of view, we'd view them as incredibly conservative, but when it comes to, like, compared to Bin Laden, they're, like, they're considered woke, basically. And so, like, okay. these, like, kind of, like, woke pro-West government, because they yeah. do oil trading with America and that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. and they engage with the infidels way too often. And so Bin Laden... Comes back, he come back. He comes back as a hero, but the Saudi government's like, this guy's just going to be. More, he's more trouble than he's good. We fast forward a little bit ahead to 1991, the Gulf War. Mm-hmm. Do you remember who Saddam Hussein invaded? No, I don't. Sorry, sir, I don't know, sir. <laughs> Kuwait. Ah, of course. And basically, what happens is there's kind of a moment of in the Arab world. Who do we side with? Decide with Iraq? Do we side with Kuwait? Because it's Arab v Arab. And what happens is America gets involved to kind of crush Saddam Hussein. There's no point going against America. And the Saudi Arabians, in order to kind of free their Kuwaiti brothers, they let American troops set up in Saudi Arabia. And they let American troops station in Saudi Arabia. Bin Laden is not happy. Mm. Saudi Arabia, home to Mecca and Medina, Mm. two holy sites in the Islamic world. And it's kind of seen as incredibly sacrilegious to allow non-Muslims to kind of just park there. And it's kind of, it defiles the kind of purity of of those places and the kind of hallowed turf they're on. So you got these kind of Westerners that, yeah, engage in hedonistic lifestyles. Yeah, probably been to Vegas at some point in their life and all that sort of stuff. Hmm. And now they're in the Holy Land. And Bin Laden is furious. And basically he goes off at the Saudis for this. And he's like, what are you doing? Why on earth would you let the Americans in there. The Saudis are like, just shut up, man. Like, we've got a lot on our plate. We're very stressed out here. Um, you are not in government. And we're trying to figure out this whole QA situation. And the Saudis just get, get really annoyed with him. The FBI also uncover an Al-Qaeda plot to attack New York in 1990. They uncover plans. And this is when there's a lot of concern about Bin Laden that starts to grow in the intelligence community. And this is throughout the 1990s. This is 11 years before 9-11. Oh. Hmm. And he starts to become a known quantity to the CIA, but also the FBI as well. Because it has matters that deal with both investigations and in intelligence as well. So Osama bin Laden basically realises that he needs to leave Saudi Arabia because it's just become an untenable situation in his relationship with the government. Where do you reckon Osama bin Laden went after Saudi Arabia? Yemen. <laughs> Back to his roots. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Where would he go? Sudan. Yeah, well, not on my not on my bingo card. <laughs> so basically, Sudan had just been there's like a, a heavy Islamic government had just set up in Sudan. 
So basically he moved to Sudan. He criticized King Fahad of Saudi Arabia. And basically he was also invited by a guy called Omar Hassan Ahmed al-Bashir. Mm-hmm. And so Al-Bashir invites him to Sudan and Osama bin Laden's like, yeah, this guy gets me. Like, this guy <laughs> knows what's up. We need to kind of like, again, basically kind of cleanse the Middle East of all this kind of Western hedonism and decadence that's been brought and basically kind of purify the Holy Land once again. And now bin Laden starts doing terrorist attacks. So rather than just helping the Mujahideen out, he starts being linked to a lot of terrorist activity. So we kind of have these huge terrorist attacks in Egypt and what more or less happens is uh, an arrest warrant is not necessarily put out as such, but the Americans, the Saudis and the Egyptians, or there's an arrest warrant in, in Egypt, they all want Osama bin Laden. And what they do is they sanction Sudan for harboring Osama bin Laden. Hmm. Al-Bashir is like... <laughs> Sorry, mate. <laughs> I, I did invite you here, but <laughs> it's time to go. I'm feeling well visited. <laughs> Where would he go after that? Hawaii, <laughs> Cuba. Take a break. Yeah. <laughs> Just detox. <Okay. laughs> Is it a? Is it someone we've met before, you know? Is it, it is someone we've met before. Mm. Who would receive Osama bin Laden with open arms? The the guys from the mountains, where they're from. Afghanistan. Okay, Afghanistan, <laughs> yes. So he then is like, okay, like I've burnt my bridges in Saudi Arabia, I've burnt my bridges in Sudan, where do I go? Ah, like, yeah, these guys, these guys. And so for a third time, he rocks up and be like, bin Laden's here. It's like the, the Michael Jordan, I'm back, like press release. Just <laughs> kind of like old boys at the private school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just like a GPS rugby game. He <laughs> was a private school boy. So. Um, so he rocks up in Afghanistan and the Taliban are now the government in Afghanistan. Because what's happened is the Soviets have been repelled, uh, which means the Sour government can't be the government anymore. They're gone. And so it's a fight between different factions of the Mujahideen to form government and the Taliban forms government. So kind of imagine like the same thing as like the National Party. Like imagine we're in a civil war in Australia between like Labor and the Liberals and the Nationals. They defeat Labor and then the Nationals defeat Liberals in the civil war. And now like Mm. the Armadale guys are running like Sydney and Melbourne and all that sort of stuff. (laughs) It's like that in Afghanistan, but on steroids because the the cultural difference between Kabul and between the Pashtuns and the mountains is just so pronounced. And so the Taliban formed government and it's a really difficult situation because you can't kick out the Taliban because you're not going to beat them in the mountains unless you nuke them. Mm. And so basically they formed government they welcome Osama bin Laden in because he was the one that was kind of helped. They, he helped them win that war against the Soviets. And this is where he goes to town because now he's got the protection of the Taliban. This is where he starts being just really outspoken about everything. So basically in 1996, he issues something called a fatwa. Oh, what? Sorry? A fatwa spelled F-A-T-W-A. Okay. It's like an Islamic ruling or edict that's given. So 996, he gives one against America that basically is like a moral... It's kind of like a moral sanction. There's no Mm -hmm. like economic consequences. Kind of like being censured. And he's like, yep, America has occupied the Holy Land in Saudi Arabia by kind of 
again, giving support to the Saudi regime. And in return, they get Saudi oil and they've had soldiers stationed in Saudi soil. So he kind of gives this one against the Americans. Then he gives one against Israel. And so in 1998, he gives literally kind of a fatwa against Jews and crusaders. And when we think of anti-Semitism, we mostly think of like Holocaust deniers in Europe or that sort of thing. Hmm. That's like 2% of anti-Semitism. Hmm. It's, it's, bitter, it's mostly from kind of the Arab world that are really, and again, there's the, this one, there's kind of context behind it. It really upset with the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And so when you're discussing like anti-Semitism and I don't at all think being anti-Israel is equivalent to anti-Semitism. That's Rick's point from that Rick and Morty episode. (laughs) Um, So please don't take this as me giving like an inherently pro-Israel stance or anything like it. But a lot of anti-Semitism and hatred towards Jews rather than hatred towards Israel actually comes from the Islamic world. And so Simon Laden, he gives this kind of basically this edict against the Jews and also against the Crusaders that have occupied the Holy Land. And he kind of views this as just a continuation of the Crusades. <laughs> and so basically he's like, yep, here's another edict against the, against the infidels. 1998, this is when he really starts making moves. He actually coordinates terrorist attacks against Americans. 9-11 is not his first terrorist attack against Americans. Hmm. But it's not in America. Is it in Saudi Arabia? No. Okay. But he was kind of thinking of that. Hmm. He goes for the American embassy in Nairobi, Kenya, and Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Hmm. And he kills 224 people. Wow. Wow. What, they're just bombings? Truck bombings. Drive straight in. And so, again, surprisingly, this didn't warrant more action considering 9-11 resulted in 20 years of war. This one, it, it's a, it's it's an attack on American soil. Mm. It's an embassy. Like it's yeah, it, it, yeah. surely it's got to be treated the exact same way, and it's a little bit more lenient. And so basically, what he did was Clinton. He did strikes like uh, kind of like yeah, he kind of bombed strongholds of Al Qaeda that that the FBI believe was well, yeah effectively strongholds of Al Qaeda in Afghanistan and Sudan, but then kind of left it there. Bin Laden also had a bit of involvement. Like Al Qaeda had some involvement in the Balkan War as well. So again, they're kind of in in southeastern Europe. They're also playing a role. And apart from that, it's a little bit quiet for a couple of years because Bin Laden is a very busy boy. Is he scheming? He is scheming. So he falls into the FBI's top ten most wanted. Hmm. After the embassy. That just makes me think of Need for Speed Most Wanted. (laughs) (laughs) But, oh, that's who the last boss is. (laughs) And knowing how, like, those mid-2000s games took a lot of pride in being anti-PC, I wouldn't be surprised (laughs) if, like, Need for Speed Most Wanted did have Bin Laden as the the final, like, the 16th boss or whatever you got to beat. And also, speaking of top tens, that would make my top five best ever Christmas presents named as Need for <laughs> Fantastic game. I'd uh, love so to know the top three. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you a top one next week because we, <laughs> that's the real thing we're in suspense for. So he's a busy boy. He's scheming away and he's plotting for this major attack against America. And this has basically been in works in the works since the 1990s. They just logistically don't know how to do it. And they're like, okay, we need to do something major against America here. And we'll go on to the reasons why next episode. 
but he is like, we need to do something. We have a major power check against America. We can't beat them in a war, right? We're not going to do an invasion or anything like that. Hmm. Even in a proxy war, we won't beat the Americans. The best we can get is like what the Taliban would later do and have a stalemate where they eventually came back to power. But we won't get this decisive victory that is a really big blow to America that will get America to back off. Yeah. And so they kind of start plotting for what are our alternatives here? What can we do to take action that could change the course of history for the Arab Brotherhood across the Middle East? And someone comes to Bin Laden and is like, why don't you fly a, a plane into the Twin Towers? Bin Laden actually isn't that sold on it at first. He just logistically thinks it's too difficult. Hmm. But eventually he gets sold on the idea. Wow, so it wasn't even his idea. He coordinated it as the leader of Al-Qaeda. Bro, like, Bin Laden, yeah. he's got a ghostwriter, bro. He's a fraud. Yeah, just got money. And, <laughs> and more or less, like, that is where his power is. He's kind of this, like, this financer of, of, of his interests. Yeah. And his, his, money, his power comes through his money. Again, Bin, Muhammad Bin Laden died uh, when Osama was quite young. Imagine, like, for Muhammad, who was, yeah, very pro the Saudi government. Mm. Just him, like, as a force ghost looking on <laughs> at the way that his son is using his money to effectively, like, change the course of history forever. And I, I genuinely think, I think, like, Osama bin Laden is as big as any of the early 20th century dictators in terms of changing the course of history. Mm-hmm. It's just, just wild. It's just this yeah. guy that's born into wealth. And in the 70s, like, it's just so innocuous. He's just this normal guy, seemingly normal guy, that likes Arsenal, likes soccer. Yeah. As a night out in, in, in Beirut and now, well, not now, but yeah, later on in history, he's coordinating what would go on to be like the biggest recorded terrorist attack. And we're going to see that next week. Oh. <sighs> what happens? Who knows? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we do this every week. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, play on the fact of this history and that everyone knows what happens next. We're going to pretend that no one knows what happens what? next. <laughs> See you all next week. Can't wait for part two. Great.